Advanced After Combat. Okay, so uh, welcome to Advanced After Combat. This is a podcast about wargaming, war games, and our experience playing the games. Uh, this, this podcast is brought to you by myself, Dave, uh, Keith, and Jason. Hello. So, Hello. Yes, so just to let you guys know real quick, too, this is an explicit podcast, so there will occasionally be bad words and... Uh, and things said that, that might offend people who are slightly sensitive. So uh, try not to get too freaked out if you hear some curse words during the thing. So it, it happens. It does happen. I'm out of breath for some reason. I'd be all. Whether you're just nervous to diss where there's discord. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I've been watching the videos. I'm so shit on. I'm, I'm, I thought of, I didn't think they hammered you too badly. <clears throat> no, 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 not at all. I think it's just I mean, funny the, when the, the designer the chimes in and says, like, the, "The designer defended his thing, but he didn't seem like he was like being an asshole about it, really." No, uh, I don't. You want to so. see? You want to see somebody take it hard? Go check out the sales of glory stuff that I was posting in there and watch people. People were like after me about <laughs> just any critique whatsoever. Like you couldn't even say like, "I thought the I thought the color on the cardboard was wrong." They'd be like, "Then you're stupid." Calling the cardboard's perfect, obviously. Well, I even saw for when you, with your blog, when you would be like, you know, you were basically talking about how the Kickstarter was delayed and there were problems, and people were like, that's what you should expect. You should be happy to be getting the problem. I'm like, what are you talking about? I know. I, I didn't really get into it. And, and my, I think people missed the point that my beef with it wasn't that I wasn't going to get it or something. My beef with it was that they lied about what they were doing. Yeah, I, I did know They said, that this one. is what we're doing, and then they put out this game, and they're like, oh, by the way, uh, remember when we told you this thing was like basically done? Well, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not even close to being done. And oh, by the way, we've completely changed how we're doing these other two ships, and you won't get them until the summer of 2014. Well, that's just, that's just not right to do that. Oh, yeah, and the other thing was, we delayed the, sh- we delayed shipping it so that we could use our re- the money that you gave us to develop Wave 2, <laughs> which, in theory is great, right? If you love the game, you get wave two a lot sooner. That's awesome. You're up to way more ships than they had planes for, you know, in as short a period of time with Wings of Glory. So, you know, I, I kind of get that, but it yeah, just seemed deceitful. Kind of, that's the same kind of shit that GMT got themselves into early with the P500, mm-hmm. where they were having trouble getting games out and financially, and so they started using P500 money for games further down the pipe to put out games more, like more current games. And people figured it out, and then they started getting upset. <laughs> Sounds like so lock and load. Kind of- well, what uh, Uwe Eichert was talking about was basically that he has no intention of ending doing the Kickstarter thing because he's like. Look, we're an established publisher at this point. This is, we're still new, but we're established enough where we can go out and use Kickstarter. Nobody's going to be worried about getting their stuff. That's not even going to be a discussion. He said, but for us, he was talking about they have a six month lag between when they put out a game and when they get, uh, dollar one mm-hmm. back from it because they don't sell directly. Um, so they have to get their money all back through the distribution chain. So, it's, you know, three months ahead of time for the publication for the actual manufacturer and then three months after uh, it's released to get dollar one out of the distribution channels. So yeah, his thing was like, we'll be able to get more games out more quickly now that we have a bunch that are ready to go to Kickstarter because we'll be able to fund it much faster through Kickstarter than we could with like a P system internally. 
Well, the only thing that ever pisses me off about the Kickstarter stuff is when they do stuff, I think Clash of Arms did it, or OSG might have done it, where they say, it's only going to be available through Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not, mm-hmm. so it's like they're kind of blackmailing you, extorting, like, you're not going to be able to get this money unless you give it to us, and like, you won't get this product. It'll never right. be available. That bugs me a little bit, because I feel pressured, the extra pressure than the Kickstarter it. And right. then you don't see it for another 18 months. Yeah. Because a lot of times I like to wait and see. I don't trust. I, I, I it's, for me, it's I have a limited game budget, so not Definitely. limited. It has some limits. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so kind of what the plan is for this month is what we're going to do is we're going to have two smaller episodes. We're going to do two small February episodes that are going to kind of focus basically on reviews and then the mailbag, and then in March we anticipate putting out a full length episode. So. Uh, the good news is we're going to actually be giving you guys two episodes this month, and this is the first of the two February ones. So, Hooray! So basically we're going to do some reviews, and then we're going to hit the mailbag, and then that's going to be it. But uh, generally, um, I don't know, do you guys have anything you want to put out there before we start doing reviews? No, I think I can dive right in. Yeah. Okay. I'm good. Keith, you want to go first? Sure. This week I'm going to be talking about Sales of Glory. So this is the Ares game that just started, well I guess not just, but is still shipping via Kickstarter right now. And uh, it will retail as a basic set for around $80. And I think, uh, based on what I heard from uh, Robert at Ares, that should start hitting retail shelves uh, for this month. So that should be really great. And this is sold kind of in the Star Wars X-Wing kind of thing where you just buy individual ships as the expansion. Is that right? Right. There is a basic set that will contain four ships, two ships of the line and two smaller ships, the rules, all of the components necessary for play, and then you'll be able to buy individual ships that range uh, nationalities. Right now it's just British and French. That will expand out later to include, I'm sure, Dutch ships and Spanish ships and um, surely some Italian ships and things like that. So I think that's going to be exciting. American ships as well, I think, are planned. So you'll have an opportunity to buy just what you want to out of each release, what they call Wave. Um, now, let's talk about the Of Glory lineage and go back to Wings of War because I think it's important to understand where all of this came from and where we are today. So in 2004, uh, Andrea Andrea. Angelilo, I think is, I'm butchering his name, I'm sure. Andrea invented this game, Wings of War. And originally it was kind of a card-based game to do World War I air combat. And you used individual smaller kind of Euro-style cards to move planes around, which was great because it was scaled so that you could play it on a table. Now, the way that that grew, it became a much larger thing. They grew to have miniatures, and they added altitude rules with the miniatures, and then the player community really took off and provided a lot of individual house rules, customizations, campaign rules, really got into it. Repaints, it was phenomenal. The way that the release happened for that, again, you bought individual planes, and those planes could represent anything from 1914 to 1918 in an individual way, so it's kind of a shotgun approach. So you might have a plane that only fought in Turkey fighting with a plane that might have only, you know, flown in the Italian front or in the Western front. Now, now Keith, so these planes, are these planes that you kind of buy 
and then you open them up like baseball cards and see what you have, or do you know what you're buying when you actually buy the thing? Yeah, I think that's a common misconception. This isn't a collectible game. You know exactly what you're buying. So you don't just, you know, randomly get something in a, you know, a booster pack or something like that. You know exactly what you're going to get. Um, and that's been a great thing. So if you really wanted to field, you know, all of Yasta 11, which is what, you know, the Red Baron flew with, you could do that. You could go out and buy those and then repaint them to be everybody in the Yasta 11 roster and do this whole, like, you know, air campaign with it, which people did. Um, I think I have probably 80-some planes of the Wings wow. of War stuff because I, I love it. I have all the balloons, all the bombers. I, I'm really into it. So You're on board. Before I, you know, before I give this review, I want you to know I'm very supportive of Wings of War. I think, it, think it's great. It worked well doing those individual releases because planes could pretty much fly against other planes regardless of era, and historically that was probably pretty true as well. So if you mm-hmm. had two recon planes in the air... Yeah, they were going to shoot at each other. The main differentiator being, you know, the kind of fuselage strength and, you know, how much firepower they could throw but and maneuver. But those three things were really pretty much it. That's not really the case when you try to apply that same system and release philosophy and movement philosophy back to uh, the Napoleonic era. So if you're talking about fighting in the age of sail, there's a different level of what you should expect from that. Um, sure. One of the big things is that ships of the line didn't necessarily fire on smaller ships. Um, so you wouldn't have a 110-gun first-rate ship firing on a third-rate 74-gun ship. Okay. That was just not something that really happened unless that 74-gun was you know, foolish enough to try to throw its broadside at, at something that could smash it out of the water with a single <laughs> broadside. Um, so I think... What's been exciting is that when uh, my friend Jared and I saw this, we were all in ahead of time because we both really liked Wings of War. We had nothing that would have made us think any way that this would be a problem. The game finally shipped. I wrote about it a little bit um, already on my blog. Um, so let me give you a, just a rundown of how the rules are, are kind of set up. There are three levels of rules. The basic game is... Really, Are we just talking about this? Yeah, the basic game could be really anything. I mean, it might as well be a game about rainbow-colored kittens that fart tanks. I mean, it, it it really doesn't matter what it is. It has nothing to do with the Age of Sail. I think, I think that game might be on Kickstarter. Probably played that game you're describing. <laughs> rainbow, rainbow-colored kittens that fart tanks. Mm-hmm. That's going to be huge. You'd be playing if it was solitaire. I would, for sure. Um, there's an intermediate rule set that tries to add some of the the chrome of the era onto it, but you know, ultimately, it's still rainbow-colored kittens with cannons. Now, mm-hmm. um, the advanced game just basically takes the rainbow-colored kittens, puts a cardboard box over them, and calls it a ship, and says, "This is what we're going to call uh, the warships in the Age of Sail." So. I skipped everything but the advanced rules and the uh, most of the optional rules we even played with in the advanced rules. And here's essentially how it happens. You select some ships. Ships come in different rates, and ships have uh, some different factors. They have a front-firing arc, a center-firing arc, and a rear-firing arc that fire off of each of the sides of the broadside. You trace uh, your firing out with a ruler to determine how much firepower you're throwing. Uh, You're able to load in different types of shots, whether that's chain shot or bar shot uh, or canister. Uh, You're able to load different kinds of shot into it. And 
depending on the range, you determine whether it's effective or not. Damage is done via chip pull, and the Kickstarter shipped these really nice black cloth bags so that you could do chip pull very easily from them, and depending on the firepower, you might have more zero-damage chip pulls in there. But damage comes in a couple different varieties. So you have damage that does purely hull damage, and that just looks like a number when you pull it out of a bag. You have damage that does crew damage, so it might be a number and a person. Uh, you have damage that sets fire, that causes leaks. You can break your mast. There are a number of different things. You can have rudder damage. There are a number of different things that affect the performance and integrity of your ship. What separates that advanced game from all of the other rule sets is that in the advanced game, you also have to manage all of your crew. And what that means is you're designating whether or not your crew is going to reload the right broadside or fire the right broadside or put out a fire or attempt to fix damage on the ship. There's even a really neat crew action that's called grog that you can use once per game to heal your crew members because... You don't necessarily lose crew members as a function of death. You can lose them due to morale or uh, due to any other number of things that makes them ineffective. So you have, like, crew points or something that you assign to these tasks? Right. You have a set number of chits that come with it, and you lay them out on your sheet. So as you take damage, um, for example, if you take a bunch of crew damage or ship damage or combination of both, you lose the ability to do uh, more actions. So on like a 74-gun ship, that'd be a third-rate ship of the line, uh, you have four crew actions that you can do, but as you take damage, that goes down to three and two, and that makes it more complicated for you to fire your guns or to take care of repairs as you need to take care of them. And effectively, you have a lot going on that you need to manage. On the surface, that sounds amazing, and that's what really sold me on the game was that this is going to be this very cool, very visual way to deal with ship-to-ship combat in the Age of Sail, which is what they sell you on. But if you believe that, you better prepare to be boarded by the Dread Pirate disappointment, because there are plenty of things I really didn't like about it. Um, the game is bloody, which I like. I think it should be that way. But the amount of damage that you do would really sink a ship. And quite honestly, that just didn't happen in that era. Um, mm-hmm. they, there were plenty of ships that were sunk. But that wasn't the purpose of combat. <laughs> in most cases, ships, if they felt like they were at a disadvantage, would either just run, or B, the French strategy throughout the war was to target the rigging because if they could create an advantage in speed for themselves, it'll let them get away. Sure. So that okay, was so, enough. So when it comes to maneuvering the ships, are you like playing cards or is it like I go, you go and you're measuring with a ruler or? So you, you play cards. I, I apologize for passing that over. Yeah, you play cards and depending on your sail strength or your sail settings, which can be full sail, makes you move the fastest, battle sails, uh, kind of the intermediate setting, that'd be normally where you'd have it. And then, uh, back sails, which lets you make kind of more tighter turns, um, mm-hmm. and they are the slowest. Uh, that gives you an opportunity to lay out cards and move based on wind strength and the sail setting that you have, which is a, a neat way to do it. Uh, and then every time you're going to move, you lay out a little wind gauge marker, and depending on where that crosses the base of your uh, ship determines how what type of maneuver you're able to make. So if you're sailing into the wind and you're taking a back, you can only use the the handful of taking a back maneuvers. And those are dictated by what your actual planned maneuver was going to be. So you can kind of game that a little bit. 
if it's directly uh, off your kind of rear, you know, port side, that'll give you the maximum amount of wind advantage so that you can take advantage of, of picking any maneuver you want to. And that's great. Now, that's where some things start to come in that I have um, some issues with. Um, aside from the historical accuracy component of it, I think managing ships is unnecessarily complicated. Um, and what I mean there is literally just the physical components of managing your ship. So the peg design is terrible. Um, I posted about that previously, and every ship has a tiny little peg on the bottom that you put into the base. But the issue is that not every ship fits into the base properly. <laughs> so you have these ships that wobble, and I was told by other people on Board Game Geek, oh, just push it down a little harder and it'll snap into place. Well, that's not true. Some ships just flat out don't do that. Um, so that's a poor design on that peg because they truly could have done anything. And really the most ideal thing to do was make the peg come off the base itself so that ships could lay flat because the peg also becomes an issue when you're trying to plan out how you're going to do storage because you don't have a flat base to put it on. Uh, so that's kind of a problem. And there were no. any number... I mean, there were... <laughs> Hundreds the big selling solutions. point for this game too is the ships, right? It's got these beautiful pre-painted. Oh yeah, it's all about the ships. They're gorgeous, and and that's one of the things that's fantastic. If you're buying it just for the ships, they're great. But don't think you're going to use those ships for anything else unless you want to melt that peg off the bottom of it. Which is another critique of that because they're limiting their audience of who they could sell this to. Sure. They could, if this ship could lay flat on a table, be used for any number of miniature combat rules other than theirs, and they're still making the money off of selling those ships, regardless if it's used for their game or not. Right. So I think that was a, a major oversight on their part. The ships are really fragile, which is it understandable because you do want to keep that scale and size of things, but the front jib is just super, super fragile. Um, I managed to have one of mine when I was showing my son flip out of my hands because it wasn't in the base, and uh, it snapped off and broke. Now, the good thing is it's easy to glue them back on because they're still big enough where they can hold a bead of glue and, and look normal. You'd never notice it. Um, the crew allotments are tricky to handle because, again, when you're dealing with that, there's not really a great way to determine how best to lay them out and not telegraph what you're going to do. Because there are like 12 or 14 different chits that you're dealing with for the crew. So you kind of have to lay them out functionally, like reload and fire, and then pull from those piles. But again, you're kind of telegraphing your moves. And, and not that they'd be so mysterious, but there are times when you want to have a little bit of mystery to what you're going to do. And when you play the maneuvers, are you playing those cards face down, like you're kind of pre-plotting? You pre-plot one turn ahead, basically. So... Uh, you start the game and you get to pick your own maneuver and that's kind of laid face up and then you begin by laying your next move face down and then the rest of the game you're just continually laying down one more face down card um, which can get tricky because uh, if you made a poor choice in a move you might crash into your own teammate which causes damage. Uh, you could, if the wind changes in the middle of it you might be taken aback uh, and it might point you in a direction you don't want to be headed. Uh, as you come out of that, taking a back maneuver. That stuff all makes sense. Though. I mean, that, that kind yeah. of thing would happen. I, I think so. I don't know how necessarily random it would be, though. Um, uh, determining your ship on the board is another really bizarre issue with it. Um, you have the opportunity to look at this game, and it's it's beautiful. But as somebody trying to control even just two ships, 
it is complicated to keep track of which ship is which one on the board. The Star Wars did a really nice job by putting a little stand-up piece that went on it so that you could see who it was. And again, that would help out on the other side of that, which is determining which ship on the board lines up with which ship on your setup board. Because even though the ships are different and you keep the little ship card next to your planning board, you still have to pick it up and look at the name because most of the ships have virtually the same artwork. So unless you're really familiar with them or really paying close attention, it, it gets out of hand very quickly. Now, what kind of scale uh, naval battles is this set up to do? Like a duel or like a fleet action? Or Well, if it only comes with four ships, it's... Yeah, but looks like that's how they get you, I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a pain. Well, that actually ties in perfect to what I was about to say. This game, at its heart, is an event game. You really need to have, like, three or four players, each controlling one ship, because trying to manage any more than two ships per person just is going to suck. Mm-hmm. Um, the the There are so many good battles in the Age of Sail that you could actually play out, but you're not ever going to play those out by buying up all these ships. In Wings of in, in Wings of Glory, you can easily manage four ships or four planes per person, even with the most advanced rules. Because for the most part, you're still just planning out maneuvers for them and shooting, and there's strategy to it for sure. But it's not as in depth <laughs> as this is because you're not dealing with individual crew members and what those individual crew are going to do. You have a m- better sense of where you're headed and you're laying out your moves further in advance. So it's not necessarily taking, um, it's not necessarily taking as long to kind of figure out what you want to do with it. So that, that was a major issue here. I think one of the other issues I have with this game is just physics. Um, in the real world, ships that collide don't back up and then keep smacking into each other over and over and over again, doing the yeah, same level pretty of much damage. Impossible. Yeah. So this game, you can do that. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus. So in one of the games that I played, I managed to have two of my ships collide because one was taken aback and went in an awkward direction for me. Well, what ended up happening is those ships kept smacking into each other and just sank each other. That's, that is the most anticlimactic thing ever. So I just really thought that was annoying. In the real world, when you like lower the sails on a ship, momentum would first have to bring your ship to that speed that could be sustained. However, mm-hmm. in the way the rules are written in this game, it's like top gun. You just throw on the brakes and watch everybody <laughs> nice. fly right by. Uh, in the real world, ah. you could put out a fire. Uh, with a section of crew and fire your cannons means that you could queue up crew to be ready to fight that fire and fire the cannons at the same time. But in this game, until there's a fire, you don't do anything. You can't do anything. It just gets, it just becomes a lost move because of the sequence of actions. So if you're getting fired at and you suspect that you might spring a leak, you can't dedicate crew to go fix that leak because that leak has to take effect before you can do anything uh, before you can designate crew, which in my opinion, that would be a, that would be a terrible way to run a ship. <laughs> if you were like, well, I'm just going to wait. We'll cross that bridge when we get right. to it. Exactly. That's funny. Um, so are there, are there like Marines and boarding actions and stuff like that or? It, so boarding actions and, uh, the Marine detachments are a part of it. In general, boarding is a really complicated procedure. You have to play with the entanglement rules, and then you have to have lined up and been in a particular position to do it. 
it's not a frequent thing, which is good. That's pretty historical, I guess. The small arms musket fire, however, is something that you can do with your marine detachment if you're within half the width of the ruler. So that's basically a little less than an inch. It's maybe like a half an inch away or, or three quarters of an inch away from a ship. You can do it. And those are pretty devastating, actually. So let's assume that you had, you know, a 50 um, marine detachment sitting on your ship. <laughs> they do some real damage with their muskets or with their rifles across the, the ship, which is kind of cool. Um, and we've had a couple little incidents where that's been devastating to the crew and devastating <laughs> to the ship. Um, right. But again, it, it really just varies. I think my biggest complaint with this game is that it just suffers from really poor design. Um, you know, I talked about the component issues, but, you know, the reason I brought up Wings of War first is that that game has been out for 10 years. And in those 10 years, they've not evolved anything. When Star Wars came out, uh, there were some changes in the way that that game functionally worked that could be universally applicable to this style of game. And Ares made a decision not to follow any of those things, whether they were good or bad. Um, the half-round pegs that Star Wars uses really lock those ships in place so they don't get bumped around all over the place when you're using them, and they fit securely. The model that they used on the bases allows you to quickly swap out identifiers, different pilots, all kinds of things, and they all look the same but you can quickly tell when you're looking at a game of X-Wing who is what and where they're at and where their command card sits. The templates for moving are actual templates that you just line up with notches on the bases. I think the card thing is neat, but we're past the card thing at this point. Uh, I really believe that if you had laid out cards to pick your actions and then use templates based upon those actions it would really make the game more precise and more tournament capable. But as it stands right now, you're not going to play this game as a tournament-style game. It'll be fun to get together and have some battles. It'll be fun to do it at a convention and make it a big event with, you know, 50 people fighting the Battle of Trafalgar. I mean, you could do all kinds of cool stuff like that. But it is just never going to be a tournament game. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and then that, that, I guess that brings up another question I have. So so it's it seems like handling more than one or two ships is going to be beyond uh, your span of control in the game. So are there rules for, like, personalities or, like, leaders? Like, you could have a famous captain or... Because otherwise it seems like one... Or or is the skill for a ship your skill? Like, you are the captain. The skill is your skill, but the personality cards that ship with the Kickstarter provide you with opportunities for uh, modifiers for your crew that can affect the game in subtle ways. But, Are those in the base in the game that they're going to sell though? No, and and on top of that, they shipped oh, it without any point. rules. That, that and they sh- pisses me off. Yeah, they shipped it without any rules. They shipped it without a point system. You, can, you so you have them oh, and you can yeah. you can kind of figure out how to use them. But there's no way to say, well, like, these two things are roughly equivalent in utility because nobody at this point has the frequency of plays to have watched that kind of normalize over time because with chip pull damage. That can be really swingy. So until you actually analyze just how this is going to play out, and ideally you'd have Ares telling you, look, this is the way that we designed it, so these are the way the points fall out for everything, that would give you that insight to be able to do it. Um, I don't think this game is a very good game. 
I think it is a problem because of the way that it's set up, the way that it was sold does not match the way that uh, it actually plays out. There are a number of issues with the components. One of the, one of the Kickstarter components that they added on were two wooden components. One was a ruler and the way the ruler, the wooden, the wood burned ruler was set up, it had the wrong distances burned into it. Nice. On top of that, the back of the actual ruler that comes in the game has little notches so you can help measure things out and they're not consistent nor are they the same on the back of the wood ruler. Is the it wooden, possible that the ruler was designed only for play in Canada? <laughs> it's, it's, it's <laughs> so the wind gauge is the same deal. It's this wooden wind gauge. And in the base game, you have cardboard, two cardboard pieces that have a plastic holder that make them mate together and hold securely. In the Kickstarter wooden component, that thing either comes perfect or it's so loose you have to put a dab of glue on it to get it to stick because there's no way to make it happen. Right. I just don't feel like for the amount of time they put into developing all of this and putting things together to get it ready for market that they did their due diligence in ensuring that the components they were providing for you were adequate for the type of handling you were going to do in that game. Everything from not being able to differentiate the ships to the peg issue uh, to the wooden components not matching on it, to the way that they handled how they were going to roll out wave two, the, the the ship selection and everything that goes along with this just it's just not there. It just doesn't feel authentic in any way whatsoever. It feels like Wings of War, but with ships on the board and a heck of a lot more fiddly management overhead to deal with the crew actions that don't necessarily even line up to the way things would have happened, like lowering the sails and all of a sudden you're stopped. No, that wouldn't happen like that in the same turn. The right. most the most aggravating thing about it, too, is that anytime anybody raises a logical issue with the game, the designer pops in really quickly and says, well, that, that's not actually what this really means. I know it says lowering the sails, but actually what it means is that you plan to do it, and then they actually did lower it, and you've actually seen that slow down because of the time. There's always some excuse. <laughs> yeah, that's the always the cheesy explanation. It's always, oh, that's been abstracted. Yeah. It's, always, it's, that's, it's just abstracted. <laughs> and this game... There are far better naval warfare games out there. If you want a yeah, fleet, that's what I was ask if you about. want my recommendation for the best game on the market right now to go out and fight battles in the Age of Sail, hands down, it's Flying Colors. That game is fantastic, and I know Callendale put a whole video out about he didn't like it this and he didn't like it that. I didn't like it either. Um, it is by far the best game that's out there right now for it. Have you played Wooden Ships and Iron Man? Yes. And okay, so that that's my favorite. <clears throat> and and so while you're talking about, I'll tell you why that fighting sail or um, sails of glory. I'm thinking about fighting sail too. Yeah, and um, I have fighting while you're talking sales, about it, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm 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 trying to kind of compare them. And the ease of play, I think, is what sails of glory is is shooting for. I mean, with those beautiful miniatures, which I would rather just have a chit or a card. But I, I see the, I see the appeal of it. I. But when they make it fiddly and they make it hard to track what's going on, I mean, in Wooden Ships and Iron Man, you can fight Trafalgar, and it's pretty easy to manage. You have two tracking sheets, and you're kind of keeping notes on what's going on. But you know, the problem with that game is that it just that game is built so that if you're not banging into another ship and playing bumper boats and trying to board, 
you're not playing it right. The rules encourage you to do really ridiculous things like bang into other ships. Which game are we talking about? Wooden Ships and Iron Men. I haven't, I haven't found that. I, I tend not to do that, and I still if, do okay. If you, playing if you choose to play historically with that game, sure. But if you play to the maximum extent of what the rules I provide, then that's what will end up happening because that's what's valued most in that game is pounding into one another, which is not really a, a great version of the way that that, that that would have taken place. I, I had a hard time with that GMT game, but you recommend it. Definitely. I've played quite a bit of it. I have all the expansions. Um played a bit of all the expansions. The scenarios that have come in C3i are all really good. It's just a fantastic, solid game that manages to balance fleet action playability with some level of command and control at the fleet level. You don't have to pre-plot things because, it's again, it's at that fleet level, and it's intended to be a fleet-level game. So if you want to go out and simulate one-on-one boats fighting against one another, apparently the, the cream of the crop there, which I've not tried out, is a game called Close Action from Clash of Arms. Oh, yeah. But again, you get into some really high overhead with what you can control. But if you're looking for ship-on-ship duels with depth of content, if you want something that's currently available, you have fleet action being uh, being flying colors and ship-to-ship action being uh, close action. And one of the cool things with close action, I guess, and I don't know if they do it anymore, but they used to do on BoardGameGeek annually a Trafalgar where everybody controlled one ship. And then it had a judge that did everything for you so that you could see as the battle went on kind of thing. Moderated. Yeah. yeah, it was really a, a neat, a neat thing, but there just aren't a lot of these games out right now that provide you, um, options and what you're going to pick. Again, Fighting Sale is an old S&T magazine game mm-hmm. and that's been what, probably in the eighties that came out. Yeah, I think so. So that's yeah. and that's and relatively that easy to get on, on eBay like if you're hunting around for it, but 75. it's not a guarantee that you're going to find it. And Wooden Ships and Iron Men comes cheap, but again, one of the things you miss out on there is some uh, historical attempt to make the rules fit the era, um, so that you can you can kind of suspend disbelief. And I think that's where my issue comes in here is there's not anything here that's helping me suspend disbelief. Well, speaking of 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 the era, I'm looking at the Cells of Glory page, and it's saying naval combat between 1650 and 1815. That's a huge chunk of time to try to cover in one rule set at this level. I mean, between 1650, by the time the eight, you know War of 1812 came around, that's a huge difference in how combat was fought on on the water the kinds of ships that they were fighting with. That it doesn't seem like that's a good fit to try to cover that huge span in in, in one rule set. Right. That's that's silly. So how I much think, how much does this basic set run you if you're gonna buy it? So it's eighty dollars on this one if you want to get the basic set. Um value wise, uh the minis are gonna be somewhere in the neighborhood of fourteen dollars a piece with the bigger ones being probably closer to twenty dollars a piece. So you get two of the big ones, that's 40 bucks there. Two of the small ones, that's $70 there. And then, you know, you're paying some for the packaging and chits and things like that that come along with it. So I kind of feel like it's a pretty good value to get that game. Um, I've noticed that 
a lot of people are putting up their full Kickstarter collections on um, on eBay for sale. So that's something that you can look into to get a bunch of ships all at once so that you have some choice. I think that's probably going to be the biggest um I think that's going to be the biggest and best way to get into it is to try to pick up somebody's collection if you're interested in this particular game or just interested in having the miniatures without having to go out and find some, paint them up, do the research on what they should look like paint scheme-wise and mess around with you know flag decals and that kind of thing and learn some new rule system. This game is approachable. It does offer you ship-to-ship combat. For somebody who's a big Age of Sail fan, it's probably not going to scratch their itch. Beers? You can play the advanced game even with all the weirdness in the... Sounds like pretty shit-faced. <laughs> yeah, you can play the advanced game even with all the weirdness in it. I'd say probably eight beers. Now, though you yeah, run the I risk think if you're taking this game you, seriously, you, there's something wrong. You run the <laughs> risk of destroying all your ships. <laughs> <laughs> well, once they crash, you're dead anyway, since the AI takes over at that point, and they just batter into one another. <laughs> so weird. So, so one to ten. I'm assuming it's not going to be good, like five or something like that, for, I, for actual quality of the game. You enjoyed it or recommendation? I'm actually going to rate this two different ways. My enjoyment of this game was about a two. Okay. I think that there is going to be a huge number of people that are not age of sale enthusiasts that just flat out love this game. They're going to love the way it looks. They're going to love the components. They're going to like that they can mix and match the rules. They're not going to care about the things that I care about. And that's really obvious when I talk on the forums about this game is that (laughs) people don't care about the historical era in which this is set. They just want to do some cool stuff with ships and they want to have something pretty light that they can throw out on the table and give everybody a ship and, and go battle at game night. And you know what? That's great. And if they treat it that way and approach it that way, they will not be disappointed. It seems like X-Wing is the better game for that, though. Uh, so I hate X-Wing. I, I own a ton of stuff for X-Wing. I probably had $300 worth of X-Wing stuff because I really enjoyed the Wings of Glory system. And I just didn't like it, period. No. It's a great game for tournament settings, but it lacks any flavor that has to do with Star Wars. Darth Vader in that series is the best pilot that has ever lived in the universe, basically, is the way they build it up in all of the Star Wars uh, content. But in the game, he's only moderately better pilot than any than anyone else. It's like he's one better. You know, it, it just, it's not great. Right. I know there's a ton of people who love it. I'm sure I'll get bashed for that. But it's really yeah, not that fun of a, it's really not that fun of a game. Once you get over, like, having the toys... It's not great. Okay. So can, yeah, I stay away from all those games. You don't think the pilot ratings are realistic enough? I wish they would be more exaggerated to be <laughs> space opera e. <laughs> not space opera e enough. Okay. It's not. It's, yeah, it's not soap opera e enough for that's me. Awesome. <laughs> I think that's fair. I mean, when you're dealing with something like Star Wars or Star Trek, you want the the good, the big good guys and the good or the the big bad guys to be larger than life. Yeah, I want something crazy going on. I want something that's going to be evocative of the excitement of the Star Wars battles, and it's just not there. Yes, Captain Kirk's seduced green alien rating is, should be a 10. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> on a five scale. 
So, uh, <laughs> do you have anything else you wanted to talk about that game? I think you've kind of really... I will put this out there. For as much as I have criticized the game and their selection of ships, and I based those sol- ship selections that I critiqued off of historical settings and everything else, and was told... No, that's stupid. You're putting way too much thought into it, which, okay, fine. Probably I am. However, I will say that they were, that Ares Games released a historical scenario booklet. And every single scenario in it features ships that you don't own. <laughs> they, oh, nice. Because oh, they, fun. because they didn't think about which particular ships they were going to put into it. And they can claim up and down that they only put ships in that they could find the details on and that people would be interested in and, you know, whatever their excuse was at the time. But the reality is when they turned around to go and make historical ship engagements and put up this historical combat guide for you, you have to, you have to proxy every single unit that you get as a part of the Kickstarter thing to make it happen. Why not think about what you wanted first and put to, put together the ship selection based right. on, you know, at least, I don't know, one historical combat that they fought against each other? I mean, does it seem like they just chose the ships to include randomly or? I, I honestly can't figure that out. So in wave two, they're going to release a ship that only six of which were made. They're going to release three. And for every ship that's released by uh, released in this series, you actually can flip the ship card over and it actually represents two ships. So they are in series two going to release a ship of which six total were ever made and you'll have all of them. Wow. Now you can't fight anybody with them because they're like a 24 gun ship, <laughs> but you'll have all of them. Wow. And they have 74 gun ships and there's a number of 74 gun ships that come in it, but that was the backbone of these navies of this era was the 74. So not including 70, at least one or two 74s in every single release seems ridiculous because you're never going to get to the point where you can pony up enough people with enough different ships to say, let's try to fight something cool here. You're always going to have this random hodgepodge mess of stuff. And, you know, I get that people want what they want and they want to have variety. And, you know, they are under a lot of pressure because they came out and said, we're going to do everything from 1650 to 18... 15, okay, fine, but you still have to determine what order you're going to do that stuff because there are limits to what people will be able to fight out. All right. So. Well, good. That sounds like you really enjoyed it. <laughs> it was a thing. It was. <laughs> Jason, you want to do your review or you want me to go next? Uh, yeah, I'll go. We might as well get the bad stuff out of the way and then. All right. You can up, uplift us at the yeah, end. Yeah, for once I'll be bit. the uplifting part of it, yeah. I guess. So I'm going to talk about where there is Discord. Um, this is a solitaire-only game, I guess originally released in 2009. Uh, fifth Column Games, which from what I can tell is only the designer. For, you know, what that's worth. This is a game uh, pretty much since I've been into war games that I've wanted. It's touted upon as this excellent, beautiful, well-playing, well-thought-out war game representing um, the Falkland Island War, or battles, whatever. Um, and it has a high price tag, and that's kind of part of the thing, I think, is that it's very expensive, and it's sold as very expensive, so it makes it kind of an event even just to buy it. What is the price tag on this thing? I have no idea. <clears throat> so initially, I think it was around 80 
dollars to buy it. All right. Um, I, I guess inflation's pretty bad. I paid one hundred and forty dollars for this game. So it's and, not the double or triple that you see in the resale market sometimes. Yeah, they're selling for like two fifty, give or take, right now. Um, wow. And, yeah, and which you bought a you bought a reprint. Is that so? Correct? Yeah. So they're on their third printing of the game um, over the last five years or so, I guess. And they've gotten progressively more expensive as they, they've come along. So I pre-ordered it about a year ago uh, because there was rumors that there was going to be a third printing coming out. Buying it from the designer is actually a little bit more expensive because uh, he's based in the UK, so then you have to pay shipping to the US, which is a little bit cost prohibitive. So Noble Knight tends to sell... Um, I guess just they, they they sell a lot of games, but they're the only retailer in the U.S. who gets this game uh, whenever they decide to print new copies of it. Yeah, and thankfully they have a real good reputation for not price gouging people. Yeah, they, yeah. They, <laughs> well, I I haven't had terrible luck with them. Um, like Phantom Fury is still reasonably priced, even though that's out of print and from France, and so. I found them fairly reasonable. It's not, uh, you know, some of our other favorite retailers who are no longer as affordable as they once were, but, <laughs> uh, which we should, I guess, hit on one of these days. But so when they said the reprint was happening, I got excited. I, I, I emailed Noble Knight said, Hey, put me on the list. I want a, I want a copy of this game. They don't say how much it's going to be. They say, Oh, you know, it'll be about a hundred dollars. Um, so they, they email finally and say, hey, we, we have copies. If you still want it, go ahead and check out. It's going to be $140 with, or $130 with $10 shipping. Like, okay, that's a little bit more than I want to spend, but this is a great game, supposedly. I'm going to get it in my hands. I'm super yeah. excited. For retail, for retail for 80 first plus shipping. I mean, if it was international shipping to the left coast from England, you gotta believe that that shipping was gonna be like sixty or seventy bucks. Hopefully not that much, but but yeah, I mean, I can't considering... ship it from North Carolina to Washington State for less than sixty. So going overseas, wow. I gotta believe that it would have some serious heft to the cost on that. So, I mean, one forty after the retail being eighty, with potentially having to pay for shipping overseas, that doesn't seem right. outrageous. Yeah, and the 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 retail in UK in the UK for this is, I think like seventy pounds. I it, it was about the same price that I would have That's paid like to buy it. Dollars. So I decide to go ahead with it, and it kind of put me over the budget for the month and whatever. So I get the game, and right off the bat, I open it up. It's not shrink wrapped, which is bizarre to me. I mean, it's two thousand fourteen. You can't buy a shrink wrapper. I don't care how small your business is. <laughs> <clears throat> or even when it gets to Noble Knight, they don't, oh, you know, this might get banged up in shipping. Let's throw some shrink on it. Nope. It comes, and there's no padding in the box because the box is so big it barely fits in the in the box they sent. So I don't know where this happened, but my box is all dinged up. It's kind of scratched up a little bit, which right away just, I, I think that's where <laughs> this game turned a corner for me because I'm motherfucker, I, I spent all this money and, and I can't even get a pristine copy of this thing. Like, I could probably get better resale copies. So I open it up and just 
nothing about it is screaming, hey, you should spend this amount of money on this game. Like some of the games, games, workshop games, like you open them and you're like, wow, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. Right. And they're even cheaper than this. Um, so I sit down with the rule book and it's 60, well, the rules themselves are about 45 pages, which wow, is about pretty my, weighty, which that's about my threshold. I, I, I like a 20 page rule book. Um, so I sit down with it and I read the introduction and the last paragraph of the introduction says, and I quote, do not be discouraged by the length of this rules of the, of the rules. They are intentionally written in a detailed step-by-step style with examples and commentary throughout. The game itself is not particularly complex once you've gotten into the swing of things. It's best to set up and play as you go along through the rules for the first time. Sweet. I don't tend to do that, but I I figured, you know, they're encouraging me. I'll just sit down with it and and go through it. I like to actually digest the rules up front and give it a kind of a week, reread them a couple times, and then actually sit down to play. Now, is there like do they include like a tutorial that'll kind of walk you through the thing? Um, there is a, a sample turn, but it's not, there's a lot of die rolling, so it's kind of hard to do that. Um, you know, the coin games do a pretty good job of walking you through things. This, I, I guess I could just fake the dice rolls and, and walk through it that way. Um, but they don't encourage you to do that. And, and frankly, they don't address it up front. They just, if you're supposed to sit down with them and do it, then you would think that sample turn would be right up front. Mm-hmm. But it's not. It's in the back of the rules. So <laughs> reading through it, you kind of see it's it's talking about what's on the map and yada, yada, yada. But then it gets almost immediately into surface-to-air combat, um, submarine combat, air-to-air combat. Well, that's something I wanted to ask you about with the rules for this game, since it does cover seemingly, I don't know, everything. Um, did you feel like it differentiated well between the you know, surface-to-air, surface-to-surface, and sub-specific weapon systems from the naval component of this game, or did you feel like it was really generic? It's it's very, very generic. Everything you're doing is you roll dice, depending on... The, it comes with a crap ton of dice. There's D4s, D6s, D8s, D10s, D12s. Um, but all you're doing is, for the different types of things, attacking different things, is you're rolling... D- different sets of dice. So the more, the better the weapon, the lower D number you're rolling. Mm-hmm. So, um, like a submarine attacking a surface vessel is rolling a D4 or a D6. So you're more likely to hit. So they're not bringing up anything. Everything. Like, was that sub detected ahead of time or any of those Yes, that's, that's all there. Oh, okay. That's all there. But combat is just rolling a specific die and you have to roll a one. Everything across the board hits on ones, okay. and that's it, which is very generic. Um, so let's, yeah, I guess I should kind of describe this game a little bit. It's covering the Falk- Falkland campaign, I guess we can call it. Not, it's not, it wasn't really a war, um, but it's uh, May of 1982, and the game is following from May 1st this fleet coming from Britain to Argentina. So you're playing the whole month out, even though nothing really happened until quite late in this whole thing. Um, so the the movement of the fleet is abstracted through uh, these situation report cards that you flip every turn if you want to. Um, you you don't have to, but you can you can stop there. Uh, you're, you, <clears throat> if you don't flip a new situation report card up, it means you're f- 
your fleet is just floating in the sea. So as you get closer, the Argentinas are, or the Argentines are more likely to detect you and more likely to strike first. Um, and you, and you go through it. There's submarine combat. There's, uh, it's sub to sub and then sub to surface, uh, surface against submarine, surface against air, air to air, air to surface. So there's all sorts of, I mean, all of the different combat types are represented, but it's, Fairly abstracted out. So just with just diary. so does the game start with the Harrier shooting down an Argentine plane, or does it start after that? And this is the actual mobilization. Yeah, it's it's after the mobilization. So okay. you're you're on the fleet coming. So it's not like the Argentines are making a preemptive strike against the British just for being there. Right. Okay. Yeah, they're they're kind of putting their feelers out, and if they detect something in the area, they will strike, but but not very effectively, especially early on. And, and so, and, and during the game, you get missions or something. No, you're you're pretty much going just to wipe out the force, kind of resisting you. So you're um, trying to land ground troops. Yes. Okay. Yes. <clears throat> and those come in, like I said, very very late in this whole thing. You're going through all these turns, um, just even getting to the interesting parts. Okay. So as I'm as I'm kind of trying to follow along as I'm playing, I'm not. I feel like I'm lost. There's there's something not. I'm I'm missing something that I should be playing along with as I'm reading these rules. So I then go to the sequence of play, thinking, okay, what did I miss, and where is it? So the rules obviously start out at 1.0 with the turn track. Uh, 2.0 is the situational report cards that I talked about. Uh, some displays, war of opinion. Uh, so <clears throat> I get to the sequence of play, and the first step of this is 1.0 of the rules, which, perfect, that makes a ton of sense. Step 2, or step B, is the weather rule. That's not addressed in the rules until 19. So section 19, which is the last section of the rules, is step 2 of this sequence of play. And then you go to the... Re- the event cards, which is step three, uh, but that's 16 in the rules. Then you go to the situation report, which is all the way back at two. The task force deployment is, in general, talked about in section three. The reinforcement arrival, though, which is the E dot A, step eight, or section 18 of the rules. Then we're at 13.1, then we're at 3.1, 3 3.5, 15.0, 6.1, 13.0, 13.2, um, so then it kind of gets back through the 13s, back to uh, the Argentines uh, scrambling. We're back at 5, 5.1, 5.1.2, which isn't really a rule section. It's a step of one, 5.1. So it follows. It doesn't follow any narrative flow any, whatsoever in the rule book. It doesn't make any sense. I will say that the rules as they're – each section of rules covers what it's trying to cover. That that doesn't seem like a real compliment. <laughs> and it's not. Each section of rules is... They didn't give you a head fake. They didn't say it was wording. movement, and all of a sudden you're in combat. Right. It, <laughs> it is functional in that. But it's one of those games, much like Picket Duty or Beast 29, B17, like we've talked about uh, last episode... It, it's one that you kind of follow along with the rules and with the charts as you're as you're going through and rolling on them, but it's not laid out in such a way 
picket duty at least was laid out that here are the order in which you do things. This is not laid out that way. And there's no tool if there are rules and then like a flip book kind of thing where it's here's the play aid. Here are the things you're doing because it doesn't tell you in any of this stuff except in the rules. Okay, here's how many dice you roll. Here's how you do this. So it makes it almost impossible to follow along with this thing because you're flipping back and forth every time you're trying to do something else. So, and so it's just this, is, this incredibly is a game where you have to read the rules all the way first and then sit down. <laughs> or just, I mean, I, I think the key to it would just be, I understand that, that that paragraph makes sense just because you don't need to know everything. You don't need to know what happens with troop landing on the first two weeks of this game. But just put the weather up front. Just go in order or provide a separate pamphlet. So as I'm kind of trying to figure this stuff out, as I'm floundering with this game, I go on Board Game Geek and look it up. And I will say, I didn't really research much about the game. I just heard that it's a good game and that it's, you know, if you're a solo gamer, you should own this game. Yeah, it's a famous so game. I just, right, so I just buy it because that's what I'm supposed to do. I am a consumer, and I want to consume these types of games. Yeah, it's a grail um, game. It's always been a grail game. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That is the perfect word for it. So I go on Board Game Geek, and someone mentions, oh, reference the errata for this. Like, okay. So I dig a little deeper. The errata is about 14 pages. Seems fair. Yeah, I mean, for a 40-page rule book. That's only 25% of the um, total length of the rule book is in errata now. But, but exactly. hold on, this is a reprint. It's it's an exact reprinting of the original game. So this errata was published, the, the, the version I'm looking at, was published in 2010. So I think that's between even the first printing and the second printing. But none of this was corrected in subsequent printing. That, that, is, total, do do that? that is total bullshit. It's bullshit. I mean, and the, and the <laughs> designer says, well... I told people that it wouldn't be in there. Yeah. Obviously, you want to George Lucas it? What's he going to do? <laughs> Add in Jar Jar Binks? We, we don't, don't want to make this game better. It's, it's got to be like the originals. Stay true. Right. That's right. Well, lose maybe, its collector's value. Yeah. <laughs> what are you thinking? Gosh. It won't be worth as much. Exactly. Yeah. Which, to me, paying that increased price for this supposed grail game, just that set me off. That was, if, that if you're was, not going to correct this stuff in subsequent printings. So all you're doing is just charging people. You know, all you're doing is not revisiting this thing at all in the last five years and just hitting reprint, 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 making people pay a premium. Go ahead. He's a busy guy. He's got a family and a life. Occasionally he publishes this game. I guess. And that's that's it. At least he took the time to type up the errata for you. No, he didn't. It was published by um, Batdog on BGG. So he didn't even do that. He doesn't even provide it for us. (laughs) Which, I don't know. So I I did make some videos. Go ahead. You're going to get a really mean email from somebody after this review. That's okay. That's okay. (laughs) And the the designer did, I, I posted some videos about this game, kind of basically saying what I'm saying now, just expressing my frustration. I, it... I think with the right rulebook, this game would be very easy to play. It would be more enjoyable. I still don't think it's the game for me. It's um, It was taking me 
at least 10 minutes. A lot of turns was taking me about 25 minutes to get through each turn. There are th- 28 turns in this game. So, That's way too much for me. So I don't, generally, I don't want that. when you're playing it, like, what do you like? Flip an event and that activates a bunch of enemy guys, and then you have to react to it. No, the, so the events, that's another thing. The event text isn't on the cards at all. It's in a separate booklet, which is fine. Some of the events are pretty wordy. Um, so the event gives you a lot of times an either or. You can pick this and do this or do this and do this. And they're, they're both kind of negative to you. Um, so then here, let me, let me kind of read through a little bit of what you're doing. Uh, so the event, like I just said, is an either or. You, you decide what you're going to do. Uh, the situation report is where the fleet is uh, traveling toward Argentina. Then you set up your forces and you send out Harriers to de- defend the task force that's coming along, uh, including your. And then you set out your submarines and, and do all that. And then the Argentinas or the Argentines, Argentinians, Argentines are are going to send some some task force of their own out to kind of uh, probe for your submarines. Your submarines then try to detect them, uh, and then they can fight them. Uh, Then the Argentine submarines can do the same. Uh, Then if there are British subs in the area with... uh, Yawn. This is way too much. it's over and over and over again. You're doing the exact same thing, yeah. and you're you're just rolling dice, trying to get ones, going to the next step, rolling some dice, trying to get ones, right. going to the next step. And early on, the Argentine force is pretty shitty, so you're not doing anything. You're rolling, setting, or you're moving chips, chips, rolling, nothing happens, reset. So tell me, so, over, so tell me this over, question over about the game. Is there a chance that the Argentine forces are able to achieve whatever political goal they're attempting to achieve in this game? Or is it really just an awful lot of dice rolling to get to a place you know exactly where it's going to end up? Um, politically, I would say that, yes, the, the Argentines do have a shot at making the international excuse me, the international opinion about this conflict so bad that they do win, that the, that the Brits have to pull out because international opinion is terrible. Jason, did it, it sound But to it's me such like, a hassle to get there. It sounded to me right there like you might have thrown up in your mouth a little bit while you were describing the <laughs> I, Yeah. I, I <laughs> it, and that's, that's kind of the reaction I get is it's so dull. I, I think the last two, I couldn't even get to the last two weeks of the game because it's just pissing me off this whole thing. Roll, nothing happens, roll, nothing happens, roll, nothing happens, reset, roll, nothing happens. I, 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 I think what could help this game is A, a better rule book, um, laid out more chronologically, more logically. And then scenarios. I want the last two weeks of this game, set it up to where, yeah, I'm either in a good position or a bad position, whatever, but getting into the excitement of this thing to then make me want to play the campaign of getting my whole fleet there and, and dealing with, with a situation like that. Because as I see it, it's too dull to play through two weeks of this to get to those last two weeks or potentially last week where things are actually happening. And, and they're, they're trying yeah. to, they're trying to sink British ships, the salt, the system. They're trying to yeah. damage your fleet and you're trying to protect mm-hmm. the fleet. Yep. The, the thing that, and to me, it's just, it's just not worth it to get through the hassle of playing it. For the reward of of playing it. The thing that struck me about the game was for a solitaire game, just watching your videos, which is maybe a game you might take on an airplane or uh, travel sure. with you in a hotel room or whatever. It's like huge. 
Yeah. And the pieces looked like they were counters, and they looked like they were, I mean, they're one size they're, smaller than a beer coaster. They're gigantic. Yep. Yeah, the, the, all the counters in the game are inch by inch. It's on two map boards. <clears throat> and so the, I, I do complain about the way this game is sold. It's it's in this giant box with these giant boards and these giant chits and these terrible rules. The, and, and I think that's part of why people are so into it, because it's a big game. Like the fantasy flight big Bingo. box games, people like them because they're big and they're Bingo. they're obnoxiously expensive and obnoxiously <clears throat> big. I think that's part of the draw of this, and that's not for me. I want a, a five by seven, six by nine Ziploc bag that I can stick in my suitcase and take with me. That's that's my kind of game. But even if it's not, even if it's not that size as a solitary right. game, the bigger issue is that there's not a game there. And the problem that I saw about this game everywhere I looked and trying to do a little research before hearing you talk about it, nobody has come up with an actual review of this game. The reviews <laughs> of this that. game start and end <clears throat> with the components, and that's it. So I don't feel like where this buzz came from that this game was so great, I would love to know. Because if you go and read the actual reviews that are out there about the game, you have no idea what this game is about other than its premise. Or how it plays. And that's, that's why I put these videos up because I want to show how this actually plays. And, and people have seen the videos and still say that, that looks like a game for me. Uh, I know there are a couple big pushers for this game. Ryan Mobile on, on Board Game Geek really, likes the game. He he says I get I get your criticisms, but but this is a game for me. And that's fine. But I wanted to put it out there that here are some issues that I have with this game because there right now or before that there was no information. And so I dive into this thing blind and I feel like I'm screwed out of my money. And honestly in 3 months it'll be out of print again and I can probably resell it for a profit. But right now, I feel like I'm screwed out of my money. Whereas right. things like D-Day to Omaha Beach, I mean, it just plays like a dream. And maybe that's the issue. Maybe I, I've been spoiled by this wonderful game, and now this game is kind of letting me down. But I did, I did put this video out, and the designer did respond, saying, "You know, I don't, I don't get what you're saying about how this game is sold." And yeah. and that's that's a huge issue. This could be in a regular size box with a regular paper map and regular sized chits and probably be 50 bucks. And then I wouldn't be so chapped about it because it's okay. It's a game and it's, it's sold in a normal way in a way that I'm used to for a price I'm used to paying. Yeah, but, but do you, you think people would buy that game at that with those components <laughs> and the rules that as they're printed, if this was like, uh, 2004. Like yeah, this was a yeah. decision game production mm-hmm. with those production qualities and this game. Yep. Do you think it would even register Probably on not. most people's grail list? Probably not. No. And I, that, that is my issue with it is, you know, let the game speak for itself. Don't make it. And honestly, yes, it's big chits and it's a big map, but the art, the map art is beautiful. I, I will say that, but the, I don't know if it's the art or the way the chits are printed. It's all dull. All the colors are very muted. Um, even some information that should be on these giant chits aren't there. I mean, it just, the whole thing just left me flat. Um, it, it, and, uh, it struck me as being just big for big sake. Like, it, exactly. If you had big counters, like the next evolution was going to be 
Uh, we're going to print the counters on paper plates, and then uh, <laughs> you can put out a twister mat at a tailgate. Yep. And we can play, and they'll have uh, where there is Discord while we're waiting for the football game to start. It's like right, yeah, and they'll have brads in the middle, and you can spin them for no reason just because it looks cool. <laughs> yeah, where there is cornhole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I will say that that the game as it plays, I I think. The, the last two weeks would be okay. The, the 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 initial two weeks is just dull. The rules as they're written are laid out in a way that doesn't make sense. And I did in my in my response to the designer, I renumbered all of my or I didn't renumber, I reordered all of my responses because he went A through F, uh, A through G, and I did G A C D E F B, <laughs> just kind of as an homage to his rule book. Um, <clears throat> It's just it's making just a friends. Mess. Look at you. Just a mess. I know. I know. <laughs> <clears throat> but honestly, and if if he does have a problem with it, that's fine. And I, you know, he wasn't shitty with me about you know he he did kind of. And I wanted to start a dialogue, and I did say you know thanks for the reply. Let's talk about this. Um, and I, I laid out kind of what my issues were and didn't hear back. But, but that's fine. He doesn't need to debate me on how he wants to sell his game. Sure, it's just not for me. Um, and I want to put it out there. Do some research about this game if it is something you have your eye on. If you still want it, um, I am looking for trades for this game or, you know, looking to sell it um, for around $130 US. But um, it's, just, it's just not for me, honestly. All right. So what do you think is your beers and rating? Beers, honestly, it's it's probably up up around 10 Um as long as you can keep track of where you are in the rulebook, which it's, you know, it's numbered on the side of each page where you are, you're just following along and you're rolling, um, and every roll you make, you're rolling for ones. So that's, that's, it's pretty easy to play. Um, uh, one to ten rating of the game, I would give it probably a three. Uh, wow. it's just, it's, it's not anything I want to play. All right. So that's where there is Discord. Yikes. So if you're looking yeah. to buy Jason's copy, he loved it. He thought it was great. It's <laughs> exactly. <dollar. Yeah. laughs> I'll sell it to you for two hundred dollars right now. Wow, that seems like a steal. Everybody, jump in on mm-hmm. that. Yep. Yep. Dave, I think you need to save us on this one. Okay. I my I have a I have a, a, a review of a game that I actually liked. So <laughs> I actually don't do many bad reviews because I tend not to. I, I usually detect. In ahead of time, if I'm going to hate a game or not. Yeah, I need to do. So that. I never would have done. That's why I don't like doing what you did, where you're going to buy a game, uh, kind of like sight unseen, you know, unknown product, because I'm too paranoid about having to be a loser. I do it a lot, and I get I get burned a lot too. So the one nice thing in wargaming though is that you can generally get, if not all of your money back, at least very close to it, Pretty or close, yeah. pick up trades because the trade community in um, wargame seems to be very active. So I don't think, you know, the risk, there's risk, but I don't think that risk is like prohibitive to speculating on games either. Sure. Yeah. You can usually make back about, especially if it's a new game, 75, Mm -hmm. 80% at least. So yeah. 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 Well, I'm going to review a Sekigahara. Sweet. This is a GMT black game designed by Matt Calkins. It's Macaulay Calkins brother. (laughs) <laughs> related. It runs about 45 bucks, eBay-ish. If you look around, you can find it for around 40, 45 bucks. That's a steal for 45 bucks, too. Yes, yeah, it's, it's available. Uh, 
I did. I paid more than that. <laughs> I paid pre-orders. <laughs> uh, this this game is. Uh, it takes place in uh, Japan, 17th century Japan. It's uh, a battle between two factions in Japan uh, for control of the 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 island. One of the sides is uh, Tokugawa Tokugawa Ieyasu's faction, and the other one is Ishida. I don't remember his, his second name. But basically, these two factions are fighting over control of medieval Japan. So there's cool. uh, the guy who was kind of keeping the peace in Japan. Uh, Hideyoshi has died. His son is very young, and so he's kind of uh, being taken care of as a regent. But his death creates a situation of power vacuum where these two powerful factions basically try to get control of, over the uh, island. And so it's like seven weeks of fighting. That's basically what the game's there to uh um, it's got, it's a, like I said, it's a block game. It's got a nice mounted map that kind of looks like, like an old map of Japan might look. Point to point movement. So you've got, uh, points on the map and then you've got little pathways heading to each location on the map. It's diceless, which I think is cool. I'm always kind of into games, how they're gonna work being diceless. And it's mm-hmm. card, it's card driven. How do you know how to move if there aren't any dice? Well, I'll get to that. So we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, because the generals, they never marched without dice either. So I agree. <laughs> the, one of the cool things about the blocks in this game that I really liked is uh, the blocks are rectangles. They're not squares. So, you know, you're used to those traditional blocks where you're going to rotate them for casualties or step losses. Mm-hmm. But that always was trouble troublesome because, like, when you get a lot of blocks in one area, you can't see, like, how strong, how many guys you have. Right. Or heaven forbid you knock some blocks over and then you can't figure out what they were on, what number they were on. But in this game, because they're rectangles and there's only markings on one side of the rectangle, you can actually stack a bunch of blocks on top of each other. Well, that's cool. Yeah, so you can just look at the stack and immediately figure out how strong the stack is. So are you, are there like dummy blocks that you can put in there to kind of trick people or? No, there aren't dummy blocks, no, but, but, but the, the, way, the way the game works, not all blocks in a stack are going to be useful. Oh. So just because a stack has a ton of blocks in it doesn't uh-huh. mean it, it might be less dangerous than a stack of four to five blocks. Oh, that's really neat. Unless you play your cards right at the end of the game. Right. Yeah. So uh, so the card play is very important as far as creating the value. So, so, yeah, the blocks can be very deceptive as to what they actually represent. And I thought, like, this would actually be a great thing for other games, like World War II games, or to have this kind of stacking of blocks and just make change between tank units. And But nobody's really... Got that idea yet? I thought that'd be a really good one. But so I like the way the blocks work. I play a lot of block games, and this gets rid of the most annoying thing about the blocks. It's like large concentrations concentrations of blocks are hard to move, and and uh, I like the way it's done in this game. Mm-hmm. So you've got you've got your blocks. You've got little discs that represent some special characters in the game. Um, you've got little cubes that represent control of areas. So the the artwork's really nice on the blocks. Basically, each block has uh, a symbol. Each faction has four to five clans that are kind of their their group of clans. So on the blocks are little symbols that represent uh, the the insignia of a particular clan, and the number of symbols is basically the number of strength points that that so, blocks. So are the clans just political differences, or are they also like one clan is you know they do I guess that time maybe like early musket fire, and this clan is all about you know samurais or something. The clans are all basically the same, 
but some blocks will, in addition to having a symbol for that clan, have a musket or okay. have a force. So that basically means those are gunpowder troops or these yeah. are horse troops. Yeah. And the clans are also distinguished by the fact that they have different recruiting areas on the island. So uh, clans get a kind of a bonus for recruiting blocks in their own particular area, but, but the recruiting areas might all, not always be convenient for where you want to fight. Oh, so kind of like uh, Warriors of God, the way that the recruiting happens in that. Yeah, they have their home areas. Yeah. And generally the way it works is if you're, it's called mustering, if you're going to muster, you've got a little uh, series of blocks that you're going to pull from, like in your little muster box. If you if you uh, match the recruitment area with the clans in the box, you can pull out as many blocks as you want and put them there from your muster box. But if you're going to mismatch the clan, if you're going to try to muster a, a from your, your reinforcements box in a muster area that doesn't match it, then you can only bring out one block. Well, so sometimes, sometimes you can bring out three. Because the idea is, you know, in this particular area, yeah, you can recruit more allies there because it's they're kind of friendly to that particular clan. That sounds like it's really well thought out. I mean, overall, when you think about this game, how did you feel that the rules fit together and created a system where that it sounds like that could have been a really complex thing to handle, but they managed to find a very easy, streamlined way to, to make it work for players and keep the game moving. How did you feel that this fell? Was it a lot of fiddling around with the blocks, or was it mainly focused on the strategy of the game? Well, I'm going to get into some of the details of the mechanics, but generally my feeling is that um, the game is abstracted. It's a very well-designed, elegant game and how it works. All, all the pieces work together. Um, and it, it is abstracted to some degree. So for the player to understand what's happening, you almost have to have a narrative in your head. As you're, you, you have, It doesn't spoon-feed you like, here's an event card where Tokugawa Ieyasu recruits four blocks in this hex or whatever. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have to, you play different cards, which are just numbers basically. And, uh, and you have to kind of interpret what's happening in your mind, but you'll see, I'm going to talk about it a little bit movement and combat. And you're going to see, as I describe it, how this stuff starts to fit. In some ways it's a card game that uses blocks. Yeah. But the, as you play the battles out, you feel that ebb and flow of right. of battle. So as I talk about this, uh, remind me, because I'm going to want to talk about those narrative moments where you can kind of interpret. It's it's easy to dismiss this as just a game where you're pushing a bunch of blocks around and you have cards, and it could be any type of medieval war game. But there is some flavor there that I think can be interpreted. It's just a matter of how you're going to uh, describe what's actually happening on the map. So, so you you, you get cards. Basically, you're going to get each side, each each of these two play. It's a two-player game, so each player has a deck of cards. And initially, you get five cards in your hand. Uh, first thing you have to do is determine the initiative. And basically, each card has like a little number on the corner, so you can bid one of your cards to try to get initiative. If your card that you bid has a higher number, then you get you get the initiative. You choose whether you go first or the other player goes first. And each turn is going to be a week. And basically it's two double turns. So first player moves and fights, then second player moves and fights, then you do it all over again, and then it goes to the next week. And you bring in reinforcements and all that stuff for the next week. So there's seven sets of those turns. The the really important part of the cards is you have you have five cards in your hand, four after you play the initiative. To decide how many stacks you're going to be able to move, 
you have to discard some cards from your hand if you want to have extra movement. So if you if you give up no cards, uh, you get one move. If you or or you can also discard your entire hand and redraw it. If you give up one card, you can move three of your stacks. And if you give up two of your four cards that are left, you can you can move as all the stacks that you want plus mustering. So you can, and, and mustering can take the place of any one move in any of those situations. Right, exactly. So so you have this trade-off between wanting to have a, a hand of cards that you can use to fight battles versus being able to move your forces on the map. And slowly as each week goes by, your hand can grow in size, but initially you're kind of uh, really you have a dilemma as far as what you're going to decide to do. Uh, and, and generally on the map you have castles, there's resource locations. Uh, so, so, and, and the way movement works is very simple. Basically you just move your guys, uh, a stack can move, uh, one. If it's got a leader or some kind of command effect with it, it gets an extra movement. If it moves on highways, it gets an extra movement. And if you discard a card, uh, for a forced march, you get extra. So you could move anywhere from one to four depending on, on what, uh, what bonuses that stack gets for movement. And there's penalties for how big the stack is. So if you have a stack that's 10 blocks large, it gets a minus two to its movement. So basically bigger cards, bigger, sorry, bigger stacks are hard to move very far. Uh, stacks will move further if they're on highways or they have leadership with them or stuff like that. So give me a sense of just how many units are going to be on the board and in play at any given time. I mean, are you talking about these seven turns each turn takes? 20 minutes or each turn takes, you know, two hours? No, each turn is going to take about 10, 15 minutes maybe, like each, mm-hmm. each player turn. Because yeah. generally you have, uh, you'll, you'll start off with like four or five stacks of blocks on the map for your side. Uh, you get five cards, so you're going to move maybe one to three of them usually. So you just do those moves and then you're done with your movement. So, uh, you know, you just figure out, okay, I've got a leader in this, this stack and... They're on a highway, so this this stack of blocks can move two spaces, and you're done. Right. If you're mm-hmm. if you're sharing at the end of your movement, if you're in the same space as enemy blocks, then you fight a battle or a oh. siege. Okay. So and the, and this is where the card hand really comes into play. Each card also has on in addition to that little initiative number, it has a symbol that matches one of your clans. In some cases, it might have two symbols. So. When you come and fight a battle, so basically if I'm fighting Jason, he's got a stack of blocks against me and I've got my stack of blocks. You, you start deploying your clans, your blocks based on what cards you have. So the card in your hand has to match the clan of one of your blocks to deploy them. If you don't have the card, that block doesn't get to fight in the battle. So you've got a variety of cards in your hand that might, you kind of try to pick which one you're going to fight the battle with based on what cards are in your hand, maybe? You know, you might have a, a stack of blocks that you really want to fight a battle with, but your cards don't match any of the clans in that stack. Well, so you, what was you, your sense of how frequently you felt like you were able to do what you wanted to do and how frequently you felt like you were stuck um, in unnecessarily long time being prohibited from doing what you needed to do? Well, the, the, the big advantage is you you can always discard your entire hand at the beginning. You can choose that instead of moving and then also, when you fight battles, the cards you play uh, in a battle are then replenished from your deck. So you might fight a battle with one one force, 
so that you can get rid of those cards and then have a maybe have the chance of drawing a better hand for a different stack to fight with. And even when you don't have a great hand of cards, it's still you can still do something with. Yeah, so it's easier if I maybe just explain how the battle works. So I I basically am fighting Jason. The first step is some of the blocks are leaders. Like it might be a leader of the Tokugawa clan. It's got a little flag on and a little Tokugawa marker. Leaders deploy first for free. So I deploy my leaders. For each leader, I get one impact, and we start tracking the amount of impact you're building. My second block I deploy with a card that matches. It's a Tokugawa block. I play a Tokugawa card. I can put a, another block down from Tokugawa, and maybe that has three Tokugawa symbols on it. So then I get three more impacts. So my impact goes from one for the leader to four for my forces because I added three strength points of Tokugawa's deployed. But I also get a bonus because I previously deployed a Tokugawa, so it's five. So you get bonuses for while you get your building impact based on the number of strength points of the blocks you're deploying, you also get bonuses of plus one for each previous block from that clan that you've deployed in this battle. Well, that's cool. That's a neat idea. Yeah, so as you're deploying, you're deploying multiple blocks, and you're kind of trying to match clans, like almost like clans fight better together. That makes good sense. The And the other interest... Greater than the sum of their parts. I, I, I mentioned muskets and horses as symbols, well, those are called special actions, and some of your cards that you have that have the clan symbol also have a sword, which means they're a special action. If you deploy a gunpowder unit or a horse unit with a special action card that matches that clan, they don't just give you the one symbol. You get a plus two bonus for playing the special unit with a special card. So it's as if your general has developed some particular tactic for this battle that is suitable to gunpowder weapons or suitable to cavalry tactics. And then as you deploy more of these special guys, not only do you get the bonus for them deploying plus two for special action, you also get an additional plus two for every gunpowder guy that matches or every horse guy that's already been previously deployed in battle. So the best way for me to do is just explain. Clan A, I put down the leader. That gives me one impact. I then play... A, uh, and you know, I've got maybe five blocks, so my opponent's looking at my stack like, you know, whatever, that's, it can't be that strong. So my leader gives me one impact, I play for my second block, uh, a three strong block from clan A. So I get three plus one for the, the same clan already being down, so that gives me a total of plus four, so now I'm at five. My next play, I play a gunpowder unit from that same clan with a special card. So now I get plus one for the unit, plus two for the gunpowder effect, plus two more because there's two from the same clan already deployed. So that's going to be ten. Now I play another gunpowder unit from another clan. That gives me one for that unit, plus two for the special ability of gunpowder, plus two because there's already one gunpowder unit deployed. That's another five. That's fifteen. And then if I do a third gunpowder unit... I get the plus two for deploying a gunpowder unit and plus two and plus two for two previous gunpowder units. So what looks like a small stack of blocks based on your card hand can have a ton of impact that you calculate depending on how you deploy them. How relatively easy or difficult is it to line something like that up in the game? I mean, is that something that's going to be a matter of good planning or is that something that's going to be a matter of, you know, chance and to some degree? 
Well, here's here's how the the planning comes in. At the end of the so all these cards that you're playing for battles, I said you replenish them. But at the end of the turn, you get actually you can you're going to get to to draw new cards from the deck. You get to keep half of your cards rounded up at the end of each turn. So you want to keep ones that match clans that you expect to do things with next turn. And then you're drawing the fresh five cards. And if you control more castles, you get a sixth card. So you have an opportunity to kind of build and shape your hand from turn to turn. Gotcha. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, how did you feel like the balance of the offensive combat, which you've just run through, with more of the traditional territory control dilemmas like, how many guys do I have to leave behind to keep, you know, territory safe? Because with a point-to-point map, the risk is always that, you know, somebody could really quickly sweep in behind you and that, you know, castle you just took is now back in its original owner's hands because you didn't leave enough of a garrison. Well, the advantage is that there, one thing is when you move, if you ever outnumber the number of blocks in a space four to one, you automatically destroy the blocks. Mm -hmm. So you overrun automatically in a four to one. But if the guy's in a castle... When you move into a castle space, you have to stop there, and you don't get to do a siege until the next turn. So castles become key for stopping enemy movement. And, and the other thing is, movement tends to be along the highways. There's a highway that basically yeah. runs from, uh, right, basically between the two capitals in Japan, and you can get into fights out in the hinterlands and out on the frontier areas. But the problem is, the movement from those areas to get back again is so slow that there tends to be most of the action tends to be around like Osaka and that area because that's where the highways are and it's easier to bring large armies together. Do you have a sense of whether or not that's kind of historically correct or it, it is? I think it, it is. is pretty historically correct. Uh, the good. other key is because the leaders give you a bonus for movement. It's, it's important to keep your leaders with these stacks. You know, mm-hmm. you could maybe send some guys up. There is one interesting siege too that they have where there was one particular, uh, Ishida ally who was very clever and uh, he, he basically defended this the Ueda castle for like a really long time and really delayed the siege. And so he's a special disc that's on that particular castle and the first hit against that castle is always him. So that castle always takes a long time to reduce. But it's kind of one of the historical factors of the battle. So. So, so, so generally, that's how the battles are going to work. You're going to you build impact by deploying blocks, matching clans give you bonuses, uh, matching having the right cards to deploy gunpowders, gunpowder troops or horse troops, and matching groups of those give you big bonuses. But again, in my mind, I'm thinking my general maybe he developed a, an ambush with the gunpowder troops. So we have a bunch of gunpowder troops. So the samurai ran up, and boom, here we deploy all these gunpowder troops, and they just blast them. Or you might have horse blocks in your army, but you don't have the special cards to deploy them. So for whatever reason in this battle, the, the terrain wasn't well suited for cavalry. So they, they had to dismount to fight her. So there's, there's a way to, to, in your head, kind of narrate how this happens. Now, another cool thing about the battles is when you deploy a clan, your, your enemy can have cards that say loyalty challenge. And this is the biggest motherfucker <laughs> card. I get killed on this card every time. When you deploy a clan with a card, your enemy can say loyalty challenge. He he challenges the loyalty of that card by playing his loyalty challenge card. And you have to show him that you have a matching card that matches that card in your hand. So 
if I deploy a Tokugawa card, a clan, and Jason says loyalty challenge, I then have to show him, wait, no, I still have a Tokugawa card in, in my hand that I have. One of the things that I read online about that was that there were some folks who really felt like that was not a, that was a really tricky thing to time, and also that it ended up not having a huge impact on gameplay. Wait, how did you feel about it? Has it has a huge like impact. You felt it yeah. was huge. I got screwed. Jason has this innate <laughs> ability to know, because what happens is you have a block that you need to deploy, but it's also my last card that matches that clan. So I'm like, ugh. And it gets very tight with impact because generally you trade off deploying units with the person who has less impact continuing to deploy until, so you, you kind of edge up and you keep track of the impact on a tracker. So if, if Jason's got like 21 impact and I have 19, I know if I don't deploy this three block, this three strength unit, I'm going to lose this battle for sure. But it's also my last card in my hand that I had that matches that clan. And so if he fails that loyalty check, so, that block is now on my side. And that, that strength that goes against It fights him. for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that happened at least yeah. twice to me, where I would deploy blocks, and then Jason would be like, loyalty challenge. And I'm like, oh. Sure. <laughs> That's hilarious. There are some cool blocks. Like, one of them is uh, the, the Tokugawa guys have the E-Red Devils, which were really loyal to them. And uh, they're at the only four-strength block, and they can be deployed by any card. But the real beauty of the system is, yeah, that's cool that you can deploy them. The downside is they don't they don't stack with any other clans, but they're always going to be loyal to you because any card in your hand can prove their loyalty. So, so what's the victory conditions for this game? I mean, like, how do you win this? Because it sounds like you could just... I know there's seven turns. You, is it just get, a matter of total strength at the end of the game, or is it you have to you capture get, a certain get, number of castles? What's the deal? VPs, you get two VPs for every castle you control. You get one VP for every resource location. So there's a bunch of locations. Only some of them are resources. Uh, auto victory conditions. If Tokugawa Ieyasu, the leader of... I think if the leader yeah. of either clan dies... It's an auto loss, and if if uh, the Tokugawa clan can kill the the prince or regent that's in Osaka through a siege, then they automatically win. And so when I I played Jason and I was actually you were I was winning. winning. I had I had castles, resource, and had but a in huge one battle. Yeah, I, I had a lot of blocks, but he managed to attack me uh, in my my stack that had Tokugawa Ieyasu. And I thought, okay, I'm in pretty good shape, but I didn't realize he had all these good cards that matched his stack, and he ended up killing him. Because if you deploy a leader, if you, or if you deploy blocks, your casualties are going to first come from the blocks you deployed. Well, so Because they fought in that So battle. sometimes you might not... Right. Well, the cool thing is, first the traders yeah. die. So the guys who betrayed you, they die first. <laughs> because basically, you're going to make sure they die in the battle. Uh then, then the guys you deploy. So there's times where you might have a good leader that you're afraid to deploy because you don't want to risk him. Because you don't know yet how many good cards your opponent has. Oh, uh, okay. Well, I like that. So there's a bit of a poker mechanic to it as well okay. in terms of how you're actually going to deploy out for battle, which that seems consistent to me with what I've learned about ancient warfare. It seems like a lot of that had to do with just how things were laid out at the start of the battle and who had the upper hand at the end of that. So, yeah, so there's aspects of it that I think lead people to say, okay, well, it, it, it is like a suit, basically a suit matching game. You're trying to get a, a suit in your hand that matches the, the stack that you want to move with. Um, and so the most, the strongest army in battle is one that's all the same clan 
and you have all those cards in your in your hand. But the the a homogeneous stack is dangerous because if you have other cards, you can't play anything but that clan's cards on that army. So you'll you might get to a point where if that army's in a battle, it's all Tokugawa blocks. You might not have enough Tokugawa cards to deploy the entire army. And, and there's also a weird aspect where. You know, you're basing strategy on the cards you currently have. But when you fight a battle, you play all those cards to deploy units. And then you get to draw a completely new, you get to replace all those cards in your hand. So while you think you're helping your hand, you might actually be helping your opponent's hand because he's replacing his own battle cards. And you don't mm-hmm. know what he's going to draw. Mm-hmm. But, but the way I looked at it was, say you fight a battle with a clan and you win and you do great and you get a new hand. And, and, you know, maybe that hand doesn't match uh, what the other clan you had. Well, perhaps right. because this one clan's been successful in battle, it's angered some of the other clans that are in your faction. You know, there's there's rivalries between these clans. So just because you're, you're successful with a certain clan, you might say, and then you draw a hand that's particularly bad for a different clan that you're fighting with. Well, maybe that's just because this success you had created some kind of interfactional rivalry and they don't want to fight. Or if you don't have the cards in your hand that matches a particular clan, yeah, they were there at the but battle, they but they didn't fight, deploy. Yeah. yeah, they just sat there and watched you. And the whole idea of having the card in your hand to, to, to thwart the loyalty challenge, I saw it as maybe hostages or, you know, you have this card that matches the Tokugawa. It's like, hey, you fucking better get out there and fight. You know, we got this card here. You know, it's kind of like you're not using all their resources because you're ensuring their loyalty by keeping that card. That makes sense. You know, I think the more that time goes on, the more I really feel like the key to any given war game in particular is just how well does that game suspend disbelief for the people who are in, who end up playing it. And, and that runs a spectrum for as many gamers as there are. There's as much suspension of disbelief. So, I think you're right. I think there are going to be those people out there who say this is this is a uh, suit matching game, and there are going to be other folks like yourself who say, "Well, I can understand the logic behind how that might have worked, um, and whether or not that's what the designer's intent was necessarily isn't as important as that's how you are viewing it." Yeah, and you know, I I, I got to say, when I first started reading through it, I was kind of like, I don't know, because I I've been playing a lot of Kingdom of Heaven, and Kingdom of Heaven is a, a game where the event cards are very rich in these historical events, and it really spells out for you what's happening. You know, County of Edessa, Thoros betrays the Muslims and turns over the city to the Christians. You know, all these are real historical events. This game doesn't have those types of cards that are going to be, like I said, like Tokugawa raises allies in the city, or Osaka betrays the Ishidas and gives. It's just basically you're working with the blocks you have. Right, right. And you're trying to build the best hand you can. But the abstraction is you're building loyalty. You're trying to manipulate your hand. You know, it's all, I don't know. I thought it, I thought it, after playing it, I started to enjoy it more. Um, then my initial impression was kind of like, yeah, I don't know if this is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So what's your rating on it? Well, I'm going to say I, I, I'm giving it like 12 beers out That's of 12 because Good. there's no calculation in this game that you can't figure out by playing it. Um, I'd say as far as fun, it's probably, I'd give it like a seven, uh, which is good. I like it. I don't know how much I would want to play it. Like, I don't know how much replay value it's going to have. It seems like the games do have kind of a sameness to them where 
Tokugawa fights in the in the right, east side or right side of the board, and then eventually the action all gets over in, around Osaka, because that's where the castles are, and that's where there's a lot of objectives and the highways. So I think I don't know, Jason, have you played this I've, game? I've played it five times? times, and I have heard from a lot of people that they say it gets really samey after a while. I don't experience that with this game. I love this game. Um, it's uh, so in the games. In the games I did play, I played Jason, and like I said, I was winning, but I lost because I lost my faction leader in the battle. Then I played my buddy Greg. We had some huge battles, uh, and at that Ueda Castle where I was saying the guy, the little guy with the with all the tactics that would, I was delayed like four turns at that freaking castle, so that really was historical. Um, then I attempted an attack on Osaka with a big army. And I, of course, had Tokugawa Ieyasu in the army, of course, which I know I'm not supposed to do, but I did anyway. Um, but what happens is when you attack Asaka, all the Mori allies appear there to fight, which is another warlord. And I kind of gambled that Greg didn't have a good Mori hand because he hadn't been using them very much. And mm-hmm. I was wrong, and he completely smoked me with all these Mori cards. And the Mori all came running out. Basically, my guy's like, oh, we don't think the Mori are going to be loyal to the Shidas, and we attacked, and then... Thousands of Mori poured out to attack us and destroyed our army. So, uh, and then Greg actually started counterattacking me, and I tried to retreat because now I was scared because I had Tokugawa Ieyasu in the stack, and he attacked me. I think I had eight blocks, and he killed oh, seven geez. of my blocks. <laughs> Tokugawa Ieyasu was the only one that survived because he had he had a you you kill a block for every seven impact you score, and the loser takes an additional one block loss. So he had scored 42 impact. Wow. And uh, six blocks and then killed the seventh with the loser. And Tokugawa Ieyasu was my eighth block. And I think I only got that because I loyalty challenged him at the very end and switched one of his blocks or something. He was very close to getting me. And uh, he wasn't able. I was sweating it. So then Tokugawa Ieyasu fled back to a castle. Everyone turtled up in castles. It was like the last week. Greg made the mistake of letting me go last. Uh, he went first for that second part of the last week. And I was able to run a couple little units out to grab resource areas. So even though he had more armies and blocks on the, the map, I actually ended up winning based on victory nice. points. And uh, Tokugawa was hiding in the castle at the end of the game with no other blocks near him. Wow. Well, that's a good, that's a good sign. I mean, one of the things that gets really tricky with war games is that as you build up and in games where you have that kind of force flexibility, you come to that point where you have this epic battle and generally the person who wins that battle wins the game. So it can be an issue as you move forward with the game where you're kind of always feeling like, geez, I wish I hadn't fought that battle. But it sounds like you were able to recover from it, which seems to me to speak volumes about the way that the play is set up in it. Right, and so now that I've kind of explained how the battles work, so you want a big card hand for battles, but you're also trying to, you have to discard cards to get a lot of moves. So in the mid to late game, you see a lot more movement because people have larger hands, so they tend to discard one or two cards uh, to buy more movement, you know, so... It, it, I thought it was good. The, the game plays great. And as far as having a game where you can drink some beers and just scream at your buddy who just totally screwed you on a card, or nothing like having your buddy have a giant stack of blocks and he's coming to attack your little stack of like five blocks, but you know you've got like four horse blocks 
and like a bunch of matching clans and all the cards that are going to make that a tremendous defensive. You're know, just out of sheer luck. So he attacks you with some smug look on his face, and then you just start dropping, you know, special card after special card. It's like he rode into some huge musket ambush. It's awesome. Yeah. But that's, that's the kind cool. of color you have to give Very you. Very cool. If you just say, oh, I played a special card, and my block now gets plus two, yeah, then maybe you aren't going to enjoy the game as much. But if, like I said, when I attacked Mori, the Osaka, thinking the Moris weren't going to be allied to Greg, because why would he have a bunch of Mori cards in his hand? Because he hadn't been using them all, all game. And then he suddenly plays like five Mori cards, and uh, they just totally blitzed me. Well, that's that kind of stuff did happen. So mm-hmm. that's well, it. Very cool. Very good. All right, should we do some uh, listener mail? We do. We have stuff from the mailbag, so... Let me read the first one. <clears throat> Dear most excellent sirs, I seize this opportunity to extend you compliments and joy in New Year. Upon listening to your most excellent podcast, I wish to extend special opportunity to you. Here in Nigeria, we have most difficult time obtaining quality war games. In previous year, most vicious warlord killed in battle and collection of games has become available to purchase. These collection of games have much value. Many old SPI and Hill of Avalon titles <laughs> would bring much joy to local wargamers. If you provide us with small sum of $100,000 American, we acquire this collection for everlasting joy of local gamers. In return, we send you shipping container full of greatest wargame all time called Small World. <laughs> if no money, it's okay to send mint unpunched copy of Case Blue instead. Sincerely, Prince Field Marshal Jerry Smith. I, I like it. I, I was it. thrown at the end. I like the plot twist where at the end it was Jerry Smith and not a Nigerian prince. Yeah, and I apologize for the accent. In the end, all of my accents eventually became. I don't know. I feel like I feel like if I can come up with thirty three thousand dollars, what do you guys think? <laughs> Well, you said Small World was your favorite game, so I thought you would jump at this off. Yeah, that's why I'm really thinking about it, because I don't have a foreign copy of it yet. I only have um, no copies of it, so that would definitely help. Jeez. That's kind of hard. What do you think? I'll see if I can move some some funds around on my end. Yeah. I've already got Cape Blue, so I'm not interested. (laughs) Okay, so our second email we got... I like that that actually was an email that was yeah, received. Was. Which... Yeah, that, that, that's what it was. <laughs> one of our degenerates did email it to us. So. so the next one, I'm not going to put, I'm, I'm not going to generally use names because I don't know if people sure, want to use yeah. their names or not, but it says, hello there. Thank you for a brilliant podcast. Oh, that's so good. I did not type this myself. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how you feel about regular topics, giving the relaxed, thank God style of your show, but I would really like someone to address different terms and concepts in wargaming. What I'm thinking about is a discussion about, for instance, activation. What types of different examples are there on activation, like chip pull, you go, I go, or impulse? Examples of some games which use them, and what are your personal preferences? It could be a different concept each episode, like line of sight, retreats, advance after combat, cards. I know that it would require some work. You could use the forum to get input, and I'm not even sure that the AAC podcast is the best place to do it, uh, let us be the gender. <laughs> Don't you worry about a slap that. in the face. <laughs> <laughs> but if you are considering doing regular content, it would be great. Oh yeah, one question. How much did Lock and Load pay you to kick Marshall off of the podcast? 
Well, first of all, we kicked him off the tree. So no, we <laughs> yeah, we'll still shit on Lock and Load when it comes up. So, uh, well, I mean, this is interesting. So I, I thought it'd be a good one because we've actually already talked about it, right? So. Yeah, I, I like the idea of doing something like that. I think that's something that we have um, started kind of tossing some ideas around to bring some of that type of content to you via a number of different formats. And, I, you know, Jason or Dave want to talk about that. I'm not that. sure what he means by regular content. Does he mean, like, normal or happening on a regular basis? I think he means uh, on a regular basis. Regular we can't basis. help with a regular yeah, content. Yeah, our content might be considered irregular. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well... I know we have talked about it. And like I mentioned, we're doing two short episodes this month, but the idea was that we I don't would. Think this is uh, be a short episode. We, yeah, we're in almost. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're in almost two hours. Almost two oh, hours. we got. I mean, reviews. Yes, so God knows how long the main one will be. But but uh, generally, what'll happen is uh, we would do reviews. We would do a little mailbag, and then we would probably do like a roundtable discussion. Uh, Keith had a suggestion, which I think I'm gonna actually need a flowchart to follow the actual. A progression of how the table would work. It's true. But, uh, you know, it's, I think it's something yeah. we're gonna do. So, um, it's, don't, so don't act like we're stealing your idea. We had already thought about it. I just want to put that on the record. So, you didn't give us a suggestion, buddy. We'd already thought about it. But thanks for the advice. Next time, keep it to yourself. So the answer? Yeah. The I answer is a, yes, but not today. I wrote a blog. Oh, sorry. Yeah, not today. Yeah, not yeah, I, wrote, today. I wrote a blog post about that a while back about, different wargaming acronyms that get used. And I think that was a really popular one just from the standpoint that a lot of people coming into wargaming, we speak so much in acronym and reference concepts that are seemingly universal but have kind of a different twist with each game that gets released. It can be really intimidating for people, even with you know some of the more entry-level wargames where they're you know, light on rules and numbers of rules and pages, but the concepts are all still there. So that, that does seem like a reasonable suggestion as a way to kick off doing the round table or doing content frequency. Is that what you're looking for, Jason? And I, I I think even terms like Chrome, I know when I started getting into war games, listening to pod podcasts about war games or reading articles about war games, the word Chrome for a Euro game means something different from what it means in a war game. So I, I, I think it would be good to kind of hit on what we mean when we're saying certain things. Like LOS. LOS is yeah. a common one. You know, that people might not know sure. off the bat. But but yeah, so it's, it's an idea we, we're, we're definitely going to do, I think. It kind of gives us topics like maybe talking about different, like you said, activation systems, card-driven versus chip-pull versus whatever. So um, that's something that we're probably going to roll out in March. So you guys got anything else? I think that's it. Yeah, I think I'm good to go. I appreciate it. Interesting so, stuff today. Advanceaftercombat at gmail.com. Uh, send those letters in. We do uh, appreciate it, even if we, we make fun of it or I say derogatory things about it. We appreciate the letters coming in. Especially from our Nigerian listeners, uh, from the oil ministry, very popular. Uh, we've got a guild. Uh, we've got some new guys in the guild, and I got to tell you, I think the guild—it's my favorite thing about doing the podcast, uh, interacting with guys on our BGG guild, Advanced After Combat guild. Uh, we set up vassal games, yeah. uh, all sorts of stuff there. Um, and uh, then Constant World Expo is coming up, so 
It's going to be in Tempe, Arizona. A bunch of us are going to be there for that too. Uh, last week of May. So, uh, make sure you get that on your calendar. You guys got anything after that or? Uh, where there is Discord for sale, send me a, send me a geek mail. That's right. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, sales of glory will be for sale as well, but, uh, I will be selling that through, uh, more traditional (laughs) means. I like it. I like it. Dude, uh, I can't drink anything. No? Because I, I didn't tell you, I got a, I got a vasectomy. Oh, here. sweet. I'm about to have so mine reversed. I am on hydrocodone. I've been taking, uh, I've been taking some painkillers, so. Kinda just makes you a little yeah. lightheaded. Yes. Yeah, when I had my back surgery, the Vicodin, I was on Vicodin every four hours for like a better part of a week. Uh-huh. You just feel in a haze. But it does make me feel kinda happy, like everything's gonna be okay. <laughs> really? It is. You know, like, you know, like when you, like I'm like, oh now I maybe understand why people like opiates. <laughs> like, like drinking makes me happy and then very angry. I like so, it. You know, <laughs> I, I don't get the same impact off of uh, pills. Is this in or out of the podcast? That's funny. Uh, the, uh, we can debate that later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, so Keith, you don't you you're just not going to play Sales of Glory. You're done with it. Seriously. No, uh, Jared put. Jared put his copy up on eBay the day after we spent quite a bit of time playing it and sold it like in a day. So mine's going nice. up today. Like probably, I'll probably put it up on eBay tonight. Aren't the ships cool enough that you would want to keep them? No. Uh-huh. No. There's other stuff. I mean, like we, when we bought this, seriously, it was 320 bucks a person to get into it to buy at the oh level we bought. Wow. Which was like everything and a bag of chips and more. Um, so, like, I mean, it was a significant investment of money, and it's one where I'm just not gonna. It, it's not gonna be supported locally. Um, Jared and I are kind of like eh about it, so he'd be my main opponent. So that wouldn't really happen. We both really love Wings of Glory, and like I said, I mean, I've got just a ton of that stuff. When people were selling collections, I would go in and buy collections of it. If it was even like three bucks cheaper a plane to buy it out, I'd go buy it. Um, yeah, I, it's I, great. I passed on. I passed on Thief. Did you pass on Thief? I'm not gonna get it. Yeah, well, that was the that was the, so Jared and I were talking about that too, and it was like it's so tempting, but because it requires four or more people to yeah. really play it. It was like, forget it. I'm not going to get four more people together to play this thing. It seems pretty heavy to play. Also, my my wife had a come to Jesus meeting with me when she saw the charge for a last chance for victory. <laughs> oh, did you not pre-order that back in July? I did, but they had a screw up with my credit card, and it was long. Been Dave, are you clipping counters? The number was different. Oh, you yeah, am. That's awesome. I know that sound anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, that's the uh, old Oregon laminations, two millimeter. Yeah, so it was, uh, so I had to pass on it. You know, the thing that really turned me off for it was not historical. I I saw that and just, I have a problem with Kickstarter. If they had just picked, if they had picked like Brittany, Burgundy, like a bunch of historical fiefs and done it that way, I could have gotten into it. But I was like, yeah, it's kind of fantasy. I'm not into it. So. Yeah, I I thought that was an issue and, you know, the way that they handled some of the deal making in it, the American version was going to be really fast and loose with the deal making. Mm-hmm. And the other ones were going to be a little more structured. So like the American one, you could make a deal about anything you wanted to make a deal about, but you could only do it three times. 
In the other ones, they were like, you can make these sets of deals. These are the choices you get to make, and you just time when you do it, which I kind of like a little bit better, only from the standpoint that it rules out a lot of the crap you get into in diplomacy where the agreements, nobody really understands what the hell the agreements are because they get so complex. Okay. So, I, I mean, that was my take on it, but, you know, the stuff's cool. All the bits look great. I'm sure the production value is going to be amazing on it. I mean, everything that everything Academy puts out has incredible production value. But you know, again, I just I think that's going to be another game that people love, but they're going to love it because they love the pieces first and yeah, foremost. Right, but they don't. But they don't play it with anybody. Right. And I yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't like where they're heading. Academy games. Like I I really liked 19. 19- or 1812, and I've heard good things about 1775, but... Yeah, I have to... But stuff like FIFA, I'm just like... And they had such a good thing going. Well, they're taking anybody that comes to them, really. So what was interesting, because when I talked to him about it, I asked him that question, like, well, you know, is this a new direction for you, 1775, 1812? And he said, no, these just happened to be the games that were ready when they came. So, well, he was sitting around waiting for Butterfield to come up with a solo system for uh, the Conflict of Heroes series, yeah. they he can't wait to have yeah, games yeah. come out. So they had to have stuff that they could release. And then one of the comments he made that I thought was really interesting was when Freedom came to him, he they the guy who brought it was like, this is ready to publish. And they tore it apart for an extra year. Hmm. So I think that's one of the big things that, you know, as much as people will you know, give traditional publishers crap about stuff. There's a huge thing to be said for these guys going through an actual development process at, you know, GMT or at the Academy or MMP or somewhere else, because those guys really pick apart games and they know what the hell they're doing. Where when you kickstart something, you know, sales of glory was internally play tested by the guys at Aries. They didn't send that out for play testing yeah, and it shows I mean, just the weirdness in some of the rules, and it just shows they really thought they had everything they needed with Wings of War to just make this Sales of Glory game and adjust the rules a little bit. Well, they didn't. I, I and, just feel like with Conflict of Heroes, they could have made a couple scenario books or a couple maps. Just to keep the excitement up. We already have a lot of counters. I'm fucking yeah. pissed. I like the game, but it's like I need more stuff. I get to where I'm almost not willing to wait around any longer. It's so annoying. Well, what really pissed me off was I bought the first edition. It was like 80 bucks. It was, they were expensive yeah. games. Right. Bought it at retail. Cool. Bought the Marsh expansion. That was pretty cheap. Went out and bought the Storms of Steel expansion. Mm-hmm. And then kind of held off on, uh, Price of Honor and then found out, oh, well, by the way, if you want to play with the latest rules, you need to buy Price of Honor because all the counters have been upgraded. Right. Well, then you couldn't cool. find it anywhere. It is cool that he did put all the counters in that other set. Yeah, but then he came, turned around a year and a half later and released a second edition that right. do, that uses its own third set of counters. Right. And when I contacted him and said, hey, are you guys going to release an upgrade kit for everybody that was loyal to you to make this series what it is? And he was like, no, we don't have enough money to do that. We'd love to, but you should have just pre-ordered it. Well, that that's a crappy answer to give somebody that, oh, well, you should have bought this game a second time so that you can play these games, and oh, by the way, I don't know if they play test that well for the rest of it. On top of that, the scenario booklets for those have like, what what is uh, Awakening the Bear 2nd Edition at? Eight, eight or ten 
scenarios. Yeah, yeah. The I just got uh, Ghost Panzer in the mail. That has thirty scenarios in it. Is that the computer one? No, no, no. That a- Ghost Panzer is the second release of Band of Brothers. Oh, okay. The Jim Crone game, and uh, it's <laughs> it's far and away a better system. With a lot of the similar components, but it actually has some real support in terms of Jim being out there, pushing new content, bringing on, bringing on people who are active in the community to kind of champion the game series and move it forward. And that was one of my critiques for them earlier on. When I talked to Uve back in 2010, I said, Hey, what are you guys planning on doing to get more content out for this? And he's like, well, you know, people can build whatever they want to, and we're going to release a point system, which I think they did back in the day, but nobody ever built any new scenarios for it. And the ones that they did build were like three or four scenarios that got hosted on the Academy Games website. Right. And the Vassal modules suck. Yeah, Yeah, because they decided to build Zunsu first because it looked prettier. And also, like... Hey, like, can we? The most annoying thing is that when you go to their website to try to get in the forums, you have to like log on. Yeah, to do anything. Yeah, because I think they're running their site through Joomla. Yeah, I just I always get annoyed. I can't remember yeah. my password. It just annoys the shit. Yeah. Did he say when that solo expansion yeah, so coming I, out? So, Jason, how soon do you think you can get it up? And for now, just trim off the part about me. Literally, snip the vasectomy uh, section. I think it's off right. This is all handle. staying in. <laughs> this is the good stuff. People listen to hear us talk, like people, not to hear, uh. I don't care, actually. I, I, you can I, yeah, I'm, I'm on the 26th, I'm having mine reversed. My wife wants a baby. Yeah. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah, so I'll be out for a couple of days. Wow. How does that work? They sew it back together. I think there's a lot of stretching. Wow. Yeah, it, that's it's, amazing. Yeah, expensive and painful and. Wow. Good for you. Good for you, man. <laughs> Oh, yeah, on that note, I guess well, we should cut, huh? But um, yeah, I don't even know if you're gonna have to edit no, that one. So. I'll just clean up the sound on this one. All right, so when do you? I'll think try to edit out? tonight. I think I'm in trouble, but I'll, I'll see what I can do. Either tonight or tomorrow. Okay. Cool. Have Bye, a good buddy. one, guys. All right, Take care, easy, man. Bye. Bye, fellas. Visit us at http colon slash slash bardgamegeek.com slash guild slash one six six zero or contact us at advance after combat at gmail.com. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna add in Keith. I think I just hung up on him because I don't even know what the fuck I'm doing with this stuff, but okay. I was just talking yeah. to Keith and I incidentally hang up hung up on him because I'm a moron. It happens. I think Dave just hung up on me too.